Hi there, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zim Nakajima again. Great to have you with us today. Hope things are well in your corner of the world, wherever it may be. Here in Japan, the schools have finally opened, still just for half a day in most places, or at least here in Fukuoka City, where we are. But it's good to finally be able to give the kids some running room and socializing. I know our son, at least, was starting to feel the effects of being isolated for so long, um, with only us and the cats for company, really. And to be perfectly honest, Chikako and I also breathed a big sigh of relief. Having said that, I read that new COVID-19 cases have been on the rise again, not only here in Japan, but in other countries as well. So best not to be too optimistic just yet. We may be up for some more isolation in the months to come. But for now, at least, there's a bit of a respite, and I'll definitely drink to that one. Okay, so we've got another great interview slash conversation for you today. Uh, those among you who have been following the podcast for some time might have noticed that whenever I'm asked if there are any books on the topic of buying property here in Japan, I always mention uh, well, our own ebook series for starters, which is geared mainly towards foreign investors, but also a book by the name of Landed Japan, which is now in its second revised edition and is a part of a series of books written by a gentleman who goes by the name of Christopher Dillon. He's originally from Canada and now lives in Hong Kong, where, aside from writing, he also runs a successful communication strategy and training company named after him, Dylan Communications. So he's quite the entrepreneur, um, property purchase enthusiast, public speaker, corporate advisor. But the reason I first got in touch with him and the reason why I've asked him to come and speak with us today is, of course, due to the excellent series of books that he authored. So the landed books, which cover a variety of countries, um, they're really a series of guides and reference manuals for anyone interested in purchasing real estate properties in the respective countries about which is written. And there's also a more general guide called Landed Global, which provides an outline for anyone interested in purchasing property overseas as a rule in any country. Now, Chris is very much the scholar, and you'll probably notice that as you uh, listen to our conversation. His approach to his subject matter is very macro on the one hand, but also very detailed and thorough as he drills down into each and every country and topic that he discusses. And I personally find his academic point of view fascinating, even if, um, as you'll notice again during our conversation, we sometimes disagree on a particular uh, point or topic. His breadth of knowledge is absolutely impressive, and you could do a lot worse than reading his books before you go ahead and start digging deeper into any particular country that you may be looking at purchasing in. So in our case, we talk mainly about Japan specifically, of course, but also generally about the Asia-Pacific region, and even more broadly about global real estate uh, as a rule. Great conversation, very interesting guy. I hope you enjoy your talk, and I'll see you again on the other side. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to have you with us. My pleasure, Ziv. Um, so before we actually start talking shop, it's your first time on the show, and we like to do a bit of a background dive on guests first, if you don't mind, just to get to know you a bit. So could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit of your own um, personal history? I know you're originally Canadian, but how did you end up in Hong Kong, and how did you end up in the line of work that you're um, currently in? And while you're at it, how did you get into property in the first place? Sure. Um so you're right, I am originally from Canada. Um, I lived in Tokyo from 1989 till 1992, and I've been here in Hong Kong uh, ever since. Um, while I was in Tokyo, uh, I worked for an, an investor relations company, uh, putting together annual reports and corporate communications materials for large Japanese corporates. Um, and that sort of gave me 
a background in uh, writing and editing and print production. Um, so after, when I moved to Hong Kong in, in 1992, I, I carried on the corporate communications business and I set, ended up setting up um, a business with two partners, which we sold in 1997 to a company that was listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, and with the proceeds from that sale, uh, just before SARS struck in 2002, I started buying property here in Hong Kong. Uh, I bought a forward and office building in Central. Um, I bought an apartment for my family on the west side of Hong Kong Island. And then I, uh, the last thing that I bought was uh, an old factory building uh, because Hong Kong used to be a, manu a light manufacturing center. We used to be the, the world headquarters for making tin lunch boxes and flashlights and thermos flasks and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And of course, all of that, all that, all of that business moved to China. Um, so I ended up buying uh, an old uh, half of the floor in an old factory building and turned that into an audiovisual production facility. Um, with all three of the purchases. I ended up renovating them down to bare cement, um, bare concrete. And, and when I got to the end of that process, I realized that there was nothing in English um, explaining uh, how to buy uh, real estate in Hong Kong. Um, so that was the genesis for the first book. Uh, and, and then it ended up uh, a whole series of books about, about buying real estate in a variety of different places. Um, one of the keys to all of this is the fact that if you get information about real estate uh, from just about any place, it's all really oriented towards selling things and moving product. Uh, and sometimes buying real estate is exactly the right thing to do. I've had uh, some measure of success with it. But other times, Buying is, is probably the worst thing that you can do. Sometimes it just makes more sense to rent. So I really uh, approach the research and the writing of all of these books from the perspective of how do I help the reader become more educated so that they can make smart real estate decisions that they're happy with and their family are happy with and that are financially successful at the end of the day rather than just buying for the sake of buying. Right. So have you just researched them or have you actually gone through the, uh, the the purchase process in each of those countries? I mean, you couldn't have done all of them, right? No, absolutely. So the, the, the books um, really come in, uh, in, in four titles, uh, Landed Hong Kong, Landed Japan, uh, Landed Global and Landed China. Um, and so Hong Kong and Japan obviously are, are what's on the tin. Landed Global covers about 110 different countries and territories, and, and Landed China um, is obviously you know what it says about China. Um, as far as as buying, I have bought and sold real estate here in Hong Kong and also in Japan. Um, in China, it's all but impossible uh, for you to buy real estate if you're not Chinese and if you're not a legal resident. So to get around that, what I did was I bought a real estate investment trust uh, that owns commercial real estate in southern China. Uh, so I had some skin in the game and actually uh, would learn about you know the process and would have an, uh, an incentive to pay attention. Um, 
As far as, as writing the books is concerned, though, um, the research materials and the information that goes into the books come from a variety of different sources. Um, so when I wrote the first book, that was that was really based on my first-hand experience doing it. And I would say it was probably about 95% first-hand experience and about 5% research. Uh, when I wrote the first edition of Land to Japan back in 2000, though, um, that was before I had actually bought any real estate in Japan. So I realized that I was going to have to change my approach. Um, and so for all of the books that followed uh, where I hadn't actually bought real estate, I used a combination of sources. Um, so the first part of that is, is just reading the newspapers. So if you're talking about Japan, that re means reading uh, the Daily Yomiuri, the Japan Times, reading the NHK website, that sort of information, as well as international sources like the Financial Times, the New York Times, um, you know, business magazines like The Economist, and getting as much background information as I could there. But also, when I was writing these books, before I had first-hand exposure, I did a lot of interviews, and those interviews were with bankers, they were with accountants, they were with developers, they were with real estate agents, uh, they were with uh, people who had actually bought real estate successfully or unsuccessfully in some of these places. So um, each of the books includes uh, case studies about you know how, how people have actually got on with it. Um, and another source of, of information in all of this is academic research. Um, I'm a, a director of the Canadian Academy of Independent Scholars, and through that organization, I have access to a wide variety of academic research. Um, and you might think, like, how would that possibly be applicable to, you know, the sort of books that I'm writing? But it's quite astonishing, the, the kind of papers that people write, everything from um, papers about environmental issues like soil and water pollution that could have something to do with, you know, where you choose to buy a home, um, to, to things like the economics of, of uh, home purchasing and how people decide, for example, how far away they will live from a train station in Japan and where the prices change there. So that's the sort of uh, information that's, that's pulled together uh, for the books. First-hand experience from myself, interviews with industry practitioners, news media from the general media, and then specialist academic research. Right. And having done all that research, you must have um, formed a sort of a general or specific uh, picture on the market in each of these countries. Um, which of them would you say, just generalizing, which of you, which of those countries would you prefer to buy if you were buying to live in? Where would you just stick to investment um, or vice versa? I mean, from your own experience, which of these countries uh, tick which boxes? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. It's, I think one of the key um, things that you need to consider is how do the people in that country think about real estate? Uh, and let me give you an example on that. Um, here in Hong Kong, um, you know, real estate is a place to live and a place to sleep, but it's also a really, really important investment category. Um, and people here are very, very unsentimental about real estate. It's, it's a commodity that's traded and it's a store of wealth and it, people are sort of cold hearted about it. Um, and if you take a place like Japan, for example, um, after the war, uh, the Second World War, the Japanese government 
um, or it may actually have been the it may have, it may have been a previous war, but in any event, the Japanese government uh, introduced very very um, tenant friendly laws because there was going to be a lot of women who were going to be left behind when their men went to war, and they wanted to protect their interests. And so, in a place like in a place like Japan, um, the scales are in a lot of ways tilted towards the tenant, whereas in a place like Hong Kong. Yeah, real estate is a commodity. Buy it and sell it. Um, the first place my wife and I lived in here, to give you an idea, we um, back in the early 1990s, we lived in this apartment for two years, and we had three owners of that same apartment oh, in wow. the space of two years. Wow! So you know, it's it's horses for courses. Um, now, in terms of investing versus buying. Um, the whole COVID-19 is, issue has really, really changed the, the landscape. Um, like, you know, like you and like a lot of people, uh, up until a couple of months ago, I traveled a lot. I thought nothing of going, you know, going to Thailand for the weekend or, um, you know, being Hong Kong, we, we do a lot of business regionally and internationally and you know you would think of nothing of uh, for uh, about hopping on a plane for a couple of days and and you know going to europe even um and all of a sudden all of that has changed right um so if you're thinking about buying real estate across international borders um things have gotten a lot more complicated than they were before uh, not only in a lot of cases can you not get a flight but even if you could get a flight you couldn't get in um, I give you a number to put next to that. In Thailand, the government is only letting 200 people into the country a day. That's 200 Thai nationals or uh, tourists in total. Um, so, you know, buying something um, in a foreign country, if you can't get there to use it, much less to see it, is is really really complicated. Mm. And um, in Japan specifically, we've got a bit of a cultural and uh, language barrier to add on top of that, don't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that I'm, I'm watching uh, and I, I think is, is very, very interesting um, is, is there's a rise in xenophobia, um, for fear of fear and, and, and discomfort with foreigners. Um, and that's, you know, there's been, if you've ever rent, tried to rent an apartment as a foreigner in Japan, um, this is not something new. This is something that's been around for a long time. Um, but the xenophobia is appearing in some really sort of unexpected places. And I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, I have two friends who recently bought a bed and breakfast on the Isle of Mull in Scotland. Um, and the Scottish government right now is, for, actually for the last month or so, has been running ads and actively discouraging people from coming to the Isle of Mull and to the outlying islands because they're terrified of them bringing in COVID-19 and, uh, and having people get sick there and overwhelming the local uh, medical facilities. Um, and we're seeing the same thing in, place, in cottage country in Canada. Uh, north of Toronto, where my wife's family are from, um, the, the same thing. You you know, it's almost impossible to get there. They're checking license plates on the road to see if you, you belong there. And you're seeing similar things on Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. Um, so where six months ago people would welcome tourists 
uh, maybe they mumble under their breath about what they do to the traffic conditions, but they would welcome tourists and the tourist dollars. All of a sudden now uh, the tourists are a lot less welcome than they used to be. So, you know, the world, the world is very much changing. Now, if you can get your head around that, I think that before too long, we're going to see some very interesting bargains on recreational property, mm-hmm. um, specifically places like Hakuba and, and Nisiko in Japan, but also places like Whistler in Vancouver, um, uh, in, in Canada, I should say, and also places like Phuket in Thailand. Um, his, history shows that when times, times get tough, um, people tend to dump recreational property before they do anything else because it's discretionary. And if you can't get to these places to use the property, you could, I, I would see that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be off those um, just, you know, because they're perhaps getting a, facing a bit of a cash crunch or they're just tired of paying for the maintenance and insurance on a place that they can't use. So I think that there's going to be an opportunity there. And the other opportunity that I can really see coming through in all of this um, is is places that were purchased um, for use in like Airbnb rentals. Um, And I'll I'll give you another example uh, from Canada. There's a building in Toronto that's got about 1,300 units in it, an apartment building. And over 200 of those units are now for sale because they had all been rented out on an Airbnb basis. And of course... There is there is no Airbnb traffic at the moment, so these are people who are you know having to pay the mortgage out of their pocket and have got nothing to offset it in terms of income. So I think you're going to see some opportunities there as well. Well, we're definitely seeing it um, here in Japan. Um, condo units uh, have already been clamped down on, regardless of the COVID nineteen, um, about a year or so ago, a year and a half now, but. Um, People that have uh, guest houses or big old traditional homes that they were leasing out short term, which they could still do, um, they've just lost their bookings a year or so ahead. And they're, especially the ones with a mortgage on their shoulders, are very, very motivated to sell at the moment. I'll bet they are. Yeah. And we're actually, even in the local newspaper here in Hong Kong, um, there was the story yesterday about uh, shops in, in Osaka and Tokyo being sold for 30% discounts. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're interested in 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 buying uh, retail space, yeah. And um, okay, so back to Japan, which is basically our focus here on the podcast. How does it compare to other Asian markets on all of these fronts uh, that you discussed? I mean, your book touches on a lot of the stuff uh, that we've already spoken here on the show many times. So natural disasters and depreciation, the abandoned homes and the deaths um, with the aging population and so forth. But there's also a lot of stuff there that even um, I, uh, you know, being someone who lives and breathes this sector on a daily basis, I didn't know much about. So um, stuff like the Buraku you mentioned, which are Japan's historical, yeah. um, the social menial labor outcasts, and they've got their own little wards um, that are obviously treated differently, at least by Japanese buyers and sellers. Um, yes. Any, any other sort of things that you think first time foreign property buyers should be aware of? Well, you know, the, it, it really depends. I mean, if you are, um, it, it, and when I say it depends, it depends on how much you know. I mean, if you're like a lot of the friends that I have and had in Japan who are foreigners who've lived there for a while, you've absorbed a lot of the cultural and, and sort of background information just by, you know, living and breathing there. 
But if you're new to Japan, um, I really strongly recommend that you immerse yourself in, you know, read the newspaper every day, um, improve the, the quality of your spoken Japanese so that you can pick up on the cultural cues and, and really understand what's going on around you. The more you learn and the more you know about the society that you're buying in, um, the, the, the stronger your position is going to be. Um, we have uh, a tradition here in Hong Kong of um, real estate developers will, will show up and they'll rent a function room at one of the high-end hotels in central Hong Kong and they'll, they'll sell homes to people who in countries where the, the buyer has never been to. And this has always been a, a source of con a total amazement to me that people would buy in a place that they hadn't visited, didn't know anything about, and basically just buying blind. So the more you know, the stronger the position that you're going to be in. Um, there's a lot of things that I, I, I really like about Japan. Like, for example, as a foreigner, you face almost no restrictions on buying land in Japan. I mean, there are some things in terms of uh, watersheds in Hokkaido and and facilities, uh, land near military facilities. But in general, um, it's very, very easy, and there are very few restrictions on foreigners buying land. And you compare that with, say, Thailand, the Philippines, and Indonesia, where it's all but impossible for foreigners to buy land. Um, the same goes for Hong Kong and China. All of the land in Hong Kong, except um, what's underneath St. John's Cathedral in Central is owned by the government, and you don't own it. You just have it on a long-term lease, anything from 50 years to, uh, in the case of my apartment here in Hong Kong, it's on a 999-year lease, which is virtually owning. Um, same thing with China. The, the state owns all of the land, so you can't own it. So that gives Japan actually quite a, uh, quite a big advantage that way. Um, and another big advantage that Japan has uh, is the fact that as a foreigner, you are not treated differently from a tax perspective. So if you take a place like Singapore, um, if you're a citizen, you pay one rate of tax when you buy. If you are a permanent resident, uh, you pay a different rate of tax. And if you're a non-resident, you pay an even uh, an even higher rate of tax, whereas Japan is, is blind to that. So as, as a foreigner coming in to buy, I find that to be... Um, to be very, very uh, reassuring. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, if you're buying for your own use, a holiday home, um, in a, like you're saying, in a country that you've uh, never been to or haven't been to frequently enough to understand, that's, um, that's obviously a concern. But let, let's say you're buying as an investor and you're looking at a foreign country. Um, obviously, you, you might be spreading your portfolio over a few countries, so there's no way that you could really be um, intimately familiar with each and every place, nor could you be uh, there physically to handle the transactions and the tenancies and so forth. So what would you advise to, um, let's say, a foreign investor who's been reading your books and other resources out there and has pinpointed a particular country that they're interested in? Um, how would they manage that sort of thing remotely? Well, so the, the, the first thing is, um, if you are going to do it hands-on, um, you really need to take a cold, hard look at how much of your time you're willing to devote to that process. Um, if, if you are going to, you know, for example, I'm sitting in Hong Kong and I own property in Japan, I, that requires bandwidth, mental bandwidth for me to, to actually do that. And you need to ask yourself, 
is is owning property directly the best way to do it? It, in fact, might make sense, uh, might make more sense for you to own uh, a REIT like I've done in China because that's something that's um, it's divisible and it's liquid. I could sell you know, 10 of the shares in that. I could sell my whole holding. I can increase my holding, whereas obviously you can't do that with an apartment. Uh, and there are other ways that you can go about that as well. You can buy shares in, uh, in developers. You could buy emerging market debt, for example. Um, there's, so there's lots of ways you can do it. You don't physically have to own the property to do it. Um, if you are going to go down that route, you know, make sure that you know what you're getting yourself in for. So I would say, you know, go get some dirt on your shoes, walk around, learn as much as you possibly can um, about the country, about the city, right down to the neighborhood, uh, because the more you know, the better better placed you're going to be. And the research part of it is is really hard to overstate simply because um, people get an idea in their head and they're going to buy. And if they haven't actually done the research, they don't really know um, how good a deal they're getting. And, and using the example, again, of, the, of the, the shows that come here to Hong Kong, I've seen Japanese properties sold here, you know, in some of these shows uh, that basically it was junk. It was stuff that had been picked over in Japan. I don't think anybody in Japan would have bought it. Yield wasn't great. Location wasn't great. But here in Hong Kong, everything is so expensive that it actually looked like a good deal. So going and doing that research, is, is, is it's hard to overstate just how important that is. The next thing, though, is relationships. Um, if you were, you know, you think about this for a minute. If you're operating across international borders and you're operating in a language that you don't understand, um, you are utterly dependent on your partners. Um, and that means the, you know, the agent who you're buying through, but it also means uh, the agent who's managing the property. And also, you know, we, if you're speaking about Japan, um, you're reliant on that agent to make sure that the tenants that you get in there are, are good. Um, and one of the great things about Japan in the 10 years that I own property there, Japanese tenants are wonderful. I mean, my experience has been, has been uniformly positive. They pay the rent on time. They ask for very, very little. They don't move often. And you really can't say that about a lot of countries. Hmm. Having said that, though, there are certainly cases in Japan uh, where tenants know what their rights are and basically uh, go out of their way to game the system. And, I, you know, I've heard horror stories about how that has really made life very difficult for some landlords. So the quality of the relationships and the, and the partners that, that you use, it's really, really hard to overstate that as well. Absolutely. We uh, definitely find the same. To, to be honest, we've, um, we've had, I'm, I'm sorry to say this being a non-Japanese myself, but we've had a lot more tenancy issues with um, non-Japanese than we've had with Japanese. Like you say, the Japanese themselves are generally excellent tenants. Yes. Mm. And um, okay, so location-wise in Japan, from your experience, which uh, spots uh, are looking attractive to you at this point in time? Well, uh, it's uh, the, the short answer is going to be Tokyo. Um, if you look at the demographic trends, you have lots and lots of people moving into Tokyo, and it's um, it's multi-generational. So retirees move to Tokyo because there are hospitals there, so they can get medical care. 
Uh, they also moved there for the restaurants and the museums and the cultural aspects of things. Young people moved to Tokyo for jobs. So while Japan's population can Tokyo and to a lesser degree uh, Osaka and Nagoya uh, are benefiting from um, inward migration from you know secondary and tertiary cities. So uh, those are the easiest places to look. And also, if you're a foreign buyer, those three cities uh, are the ones that are easiest to understand, the most international. If you if you go outside of that. Things become a little bit more complicated, and the research and the general process becomes a little bit more complicated. Um, I think Fukuoka is an absolutely lovely city, and I would I'd love to live there. Uh, I've been scuba diving in Okinawa, and I would you know uh, absolutely love to own a place there. But if you're buying something like an apartment in Tokyo or a series of apartments in Tokyo, you have to th- or in Japan, you have to think about buying them. But at the same time, you also have to think about selling them uh and it's going to be much easier to sell an apartment or or a, a piece of retail property in a major metropolis than it is somewhere outside um japan's secondary and tertiary cities are in huge trouble uh population decline shrinking tax bases um and from that the next problem that you end up with is um, infrastructure that's crumbling and, and because there's no tax base, there's no business there, there's no money to repair the bridges and the roads and, and to provide, in some cases, basic services like trash collection and snow shoveling and things like that. That's not in every city, but it's a recurring theme. And if you look at the numbers, uh, a, lot of, a, a lot of the secondary and tertiary um, cities and towns are being amalgamated and, and basically the population is you know, old and dying off, and and the young people are moving to to uh, to big cities. So, a lot of foreigners that I know go to the countryside and they think, "Wow, this is really beautiful, and I'd love to buy a place." But again, how do you sell it when it's all said and done? That's that really becomes you know a major a major major issue. Um, now, one sort of bright spot in all of this potentially, though, um, if you have a long view, um, is with with everything that's gone on with COVID-19, um, we're seeing countries around the world focusing on uh, a thing called autarky, which is a fancy way of saying being self-sufficient. Um, and and that, res- that goes to everything from things like surgical masks to pharmaceuticals to all kinds of different manufacturing, uh, agriculture, a variety of other things. And I think what... Um, what you may see going forward in places like Japan is that you may see some of the manufacturing that was offshored to China, to Thailand, to Vietnam, to Indonesia, places like that, may start to move back to Japan. And that could give some of these secondary and tertiary cities a little boost. Um, but that's a, a, a far more speculative buy than buying you know, a, a small apartment in the core of one of the major cities. I um I have to say I definitely agree with you um on the uh, countryside properties and the um, smaller townships that are um, in population decline. But metropolitan wise, man, Tokyo and Osaka yields are horrible. They're um pretty much where they've been. I mean, we've seen a a good decline in the last two months um, with the outbreak, but generally speaking, they're at the level they were um, pre uh, nineteen ninety, the bubble burst. Really? Yeah. I mean, uh, Tokyo and Osaka prices um, 
again, aside from the last two months or so, yields have been compressed um, unbelievably. I mean, we're not seeing anything beyond 3 or 4% there. And um, other places, like you've mentioned, Nagoya and Fukuoka, um, or even maybe the satellite cities around Tokyo and Osaka, um, where they're, you know, within 45 or one hour um, train ride to the city, um, they still enjoy population growth and the yields are just nothing to compare. Interesting. It also depends, too, on, on what you're buying. Um, there is, among Asian buyers, there is a, gener- a, a general bias towards buying new property. Uh, and then the depreciation you get hit with by when you buy something new, it can be quite horrific. Whereas if you buy something that's, uh, you know, built in the in the 80s after the last round of seismic um seismic uh, uh, regulation upgrades so you know it's it's fairly solidly built it's small it's near a train station um, sometimes you can get a much better yield out of that than you can out of, out of buying something um, that as a foreigner you might like to buy or to live in I should say yeah definitely I mean that's uh, that's mostly the profile that uh, most of the people that we work with go through okay good stuff thank you for that um, I think listeners would definitely benefit from this point of view and experience there and um, just before we let you go, what are you up to these days? Um, as this outbreak, this epidemic affected you, your business, your investment, property purchase plans? Well, um, so it, it's been interesting here in Hong Kong. So I lived here during the SARS outbreak uh, in 2002, 2003. And so for me and my family, um, this is not quite as terrifying as it is, I think, for, for people in, say, North America and places like that. It, ha- it has caused a bit of a slowdown in business. Uh, but, you know, things chug along and, and you know, we're, we're here for the long term. Um, I'm also uh, in the process now of writing a, a, a seventh book mm-hmm. uh, about buying real estate in the post-COVID environment. Um, because as, as I've suggested in a couple of points, um, there are going to be some, some major changes, and I think that there are going to be some major opportunities um, for investors who are willing to take a long view and who've got access to funding and, and who understand you know, how the world works. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, what I'm not doing, client work. I'm, I'm in, the, in the midst of, uh, of writing book number seven. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, that should actually be a very good read, I think. And are you actually waiting for... Um things to um, be a bit more smooth, or are you going to release it um, even if it's still going on? Well, it, uh, it, uh, it will go out as soon as it's done. So that I'm hoping, uh, or definitely going to be out before the end of the year. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's one of those, you know, harking back to something I said a little bit earlier, it's um, the, the lesson here is do your research. You know, if you're thinking about buying in a neighborhood and you understand the rhythms of the neighborhood, you understand what drives the uh, drives buyers in the neighborhood, you understand the psychology of the place, all of the research that you do that way is going to stand you in good stead. And then that way, if you do see an opportunity, you can push the button and, and take advantage of it rather than going in sort of half blind. So it's it's really all about research. And we're, you know, the, the thing about COVID is the world is, is really changing um, in so many different ways, whether it be Airbnb, um, you know, going, morphing into whatever it becomes next. Uh, I was reading, you know, on a, a side note, I was reading a, a piece in the Vancouver newspapers 
a couple of days ago, the city of Vancouver has actually said that they might go into bankruptcy because they're afraid people aren't going to be able to pay their property taxes. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, um, so there's, there's lots and lots of moving parts here. And, of course, whenever there is great change like that, there, there's always great opportunities as well if you're, if you're prepared for them. Absolutely. That's great. So we'll probably end on this note. And uh, we're going to link to the landedbook.com to uh, Chris's series of books in this episode show notes, folks. So go down there and, and just check on Chris's progress with the new book, but definitely download and purchase the uh, older books as well if you can. You'll definitely find a great benefit in there. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. My, my pleasure, Ziv. And uh, also, when your readers hit landedbook.com, there's a whole bunch of uh, videos and other free resources on there that are worth a look to, especially if you're thinking about buying. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. All right. There you have it. Mr. Christopher Dillon of Dillon Communications, author of the Landed series of guidebooks to global real estate, and more specifically, author of Landed Japan. Now it's a second revised edition again. We'll link to the book's website in this episode show notes, of course. So feel free to have a browse and, of course, purchase any or all of them. You definitely won't regret it. And in case you're interested more specifically in Japan real estate property investment, we'll also link to our own ebook series again in the show notes. Uh, those are free to download and read, so feel free to do so. And of course, feel free to use those links to also contact Christopher or myself here at NTI with any questions, requests for more information that you might have. Uh, we always love talking shop, so don't be shy. That's it from us for today, folks. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and our conversation with Christopher Dillon. Do leave us a comment or note wherever you might have found the podcast. We're always interested in your thoughts and we would love to hear from you. And we would, of course, hugely appreciate it if you could leave us a star rating. It only takes a few seconds or a review, a few words, maybe a minute or two, even better, on the iTunes store, Spotify, or wherever good podcasts can be found, downloaded, streamed, rated, and reviewed. We hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI and at Dylan Communications, we wish you a great and safe day or night, wherever in the world you might be, and whenever you might be listening to this recording. Speak to you again soon, and until then, Yoshiku!